Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My guest this week is Michael R. Underwood. He's the author of six novels across several genres, from the Re-Reyes urban fantasy series to the forthcoming genre knots with Tor.com. By day, he's the North American sales and marketing manager for Angry Robot Books. Mike lives in Baltimore with his fiance and their ever-growing library. He's a co-host on the Hugo-nominated Skiffy and Fanty show. As far as I can tell, he's the first guest with an official bio that I've had on the show. We're going to be diving a bit further back into Mike's history today to talk about folklore in science fiction and fantasy. So thanks for putting on your author and reader hat. Maybe we can start a little bit with your history with the genre and your interest in folklore. You know, I've loved science fiction, fantasy, media, and stories as long as I can remember. You know, my uh, fun anecdote that I, I tell because it's emblematic, if not super uh, realistic, is that my parents took me to see two movies before I was one year old. And one of them was Gandhi and the other one was Star Wars Return of the Jedi. So uh, one of those has had a, a, a very large impact on the way that I view the world and life. And the other is Gandhi. <laughs> uh, I've watched cartoons as a kid, Robotech, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the whole kind of mid-late 80s, Saturday morning suite. But then you know, I got into comics very early. We lived in Brooklyn when I was in like second through fourth grade. So I had my neighborhood shop, and then I got into reading after being a little bit of a late starter. And from then, I got into gaming, and it's just been everything. All sorts of geekdoms across all media, and then I graze across the genres, and I'm pretty omnivorous in terms of my inputs. Okay. Did you ever drift away for a while and then come back, or has it been a pretty consistent... The, I think the closest I've, I've been to ever drifting away was like just during grad school. I had to focus a lot on the work itself, but my graduate work was in folklore studies on tabletop role-playing, and the material that I was focusing on was always speculative fiction games and people playing and creating stories within the genre. So I've never kind of cast aside the genre, nor have I really ever wandered away from it. The literature of the fantastic, and by that I mean to specifically include science fiction, has really always been with me. In terms of folklore, as an undergrad, I was a freshman the year of 9-11 in the U.S. So I was a month and a half into my first year of college when this big national level event happened. And, and like a lot of folks in my generation, I kind of went went scrambling for meaning. And what I found was Joseph Campbell, who I knew of because I had heard, oh, Joseph Campbell helped suggest things to George Lucas in Star Wars and being a big Star Wars fan, plus my overall interest in, in folklore and stories kind of set me down the Campbellian folklore and mythology scholarship track, which then broadened into folklore more generally. And unlike a lot of my former colleagues in folklore, I focus on contemporary culture, which some people say is or isn't folklore, which can be a, a fun different topic for later on. But, you know, I see folklore as really part and parcel with the genre, especially in the mode of fantastic. This is actually perfect because I was going to ask, rather than Campbell and Lucas being my way into undergrad studies, mm -hmm. uh, Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings and Old English were my way into undergrad oh, yeah? studies. And so for me, it was it was epic poetry of various sorts, which made me wonder a little bit about folklore and what that means because i've i've got a certain amount of background and experience with anglo-saxonists trying to mm -hmm. excavate pre-christian oral tradition from the oral poetry that's been yeah. of course written down and then i think sometimes of fairy tales and i guess i think of baba yaga's hut and mm -hmm. i'm not quite sure what 
when I think of folklore and how folklore kind of intersects and how it's different from some of those other genres, what are you meaning when you say that? I pulled up the American Folklore Society's website, which is, you know, one of the kind of big clearinghouses of the discipline in this country. And, you know, there's like 12 definitions of what folklore is because there's a lot of overlap in what people mean when they say folklore as a discipline, but very few people totally overlap 100%. You know, one definition from Dan Ben Amos, who's a fairly noted scholar, is folklore is artistic communication in small groups. So that's a really small, capsulated version. Another way of thinking about it is these are traditions that people believe, do, know, make, or say. So there's a lot of different ways of being folklore. Jokes are folklore. Urban legends are folklore. Origin myths like cosmogonies and cosmologies are folklore. Hero legends are folklore. Ghost stories are folklore. Depending on the way that you kind of set the net, it can be a huge proportion of material immaterial and other belief culture around the world. We can probably want to we'll probably want to dig into some subsections like hero legends, I think has a lot of crossover with the fantasy genre. Mm-hmm. But it's also really notable, I think, to look at the stories that carried a lot of belief, so mythology and some legends. Over time, other cultures look at those stories and say, that's folklore. And then from the inside, this is our, our sacred stuff. And then what is regarded as folklore later gets turned into, oh, that's the fantastic. It's not real. It is, it's an allegory. So there's that tension sometimes between people in populations who believe narratives and ideas to be literally true, mm-hmm. whether they're kind of magically literally true, and out from the outside, oh, this is interesting literature. Mm-hmm. And I think that tension is really a part of the genre, because there's a Eurocentrism in a lot of fantasy. And then from other perspectives, what was true within sacred narratives um, is regarded as fantasy. And then from a Eurocentric standpoint, we look at other sacred narratives and call them fantasy. Yeah, I know that I have seen authors who are writing outside of European narrative and European and American literary traditions saying, you know, I'm writing the stories of my culture. Do you see ways that folklore is intentionally included in the genre? And do you see other ways that it sort of creeps its way in? I mean, I guess I'm thinking there is the fairy tale retelling and there Mm -hmm. are many, many iterations on things like Campbell's Hero's Journey. Yeah. Is it too broad and silly to say, well, all of the fantasy genre is folklore in some sense? Is that, I mean, is that something that that could be said more seriously than I just said it? Well, I think the two points that you brought up in terms of the use of fairy tales in the genre and the Campbellian monomyth, those are definitely really notable places where topics that folklorists would work a lot on are then really relevant in the literature of the fantastic. I think the the influence of Professor Tolkien on Western Anglo fantasy is really hard to overestimate because of the way that the different narratives that come together and what gets called fantasy and how that as a genre from a marketing and academic standpoint was talked about. Mm-hmm. Because Tolkien himself was was syncretizing and rolling in so many influences. You know, he was he was looking at the sagas and the ring cycle and his love of language, but then also looking at kind of a national mythology because Lord of the Rings is so very British in in several ways, and you get the tension of industrialism, which Tolkien seems to have resisted in his life, but is a really strong reading of the Lord of the Rings work. So you get all of these places in which he served as a lens and a catalyst which then kind of spools out into the genre. We have so many of these other 
influences that feed in. Urban legends are a real notable influence on urban fantasy. And if you look more broadly at folkloristics, a lot of world building comes down to figuring out what the folklore is. You know, what's the day-to-day practice of people in in your setting? You're determining what the folklore is, what the folk practices are, what's the kind of local and regional religious beliefs, and how do they contrast to an official, like, top-down state religion? Because that's folk religion is emergent from below versus orthodoxy from above. So there's just so many different ways of using the lens of folkloristics and talking about what the genre does. Let's pick a couple specifics. Yeah. I picking up on the notion that there is folklore which emerges from below and which may, may well manifest either older beliefs or simply more practical day-to-day realities as opposed to orthodoxy op- imposed from above. And I am thinking of a recent essay, and it's not going to matter whether you read it or not, by Nicola Griffith talking about her research into Anglo-Saxon England and the charms of Anglo-Saxon England. And she said it seemed to her that there were a lot of those charms that turn out to be actually very practical. And in fact, Mm -hmm. there's this old Anglo-Saxon charm, and it turns out if you go out and you make it, it's got incredible antibacterial properties. Yeah. Like, it's... It's really useful, and it is probably the kind of thing that people did lots of trial and error, and it developed very practically. Can you think of any authors or books that have, for you, kind of shown the practical and and the sort of tension between the grounds-up practical and the orthodoxy imposed from the top, and the ways that, that that's probably led to dramatic or narrative tension and also kind of enhanced the world building? In terms of recent, epic fantasy is you know, going to be a great place to look at folklore. I'm thinking of N.K. Jemisin's Inheritance Cycle, where you get Yena, who comes in from the country and is a country noble. And her understanding of what the gods were like, kind of as it was passed down to her within her community, and then the way that violently contrasts yes. with the reality of the gods and their lived experiences. And for me, they came off as... I would almost call them more like titans or demigods. Uh And then you had the trinity at the top, the cosmogony and the cosmology, like the beginning of things and the way things are was so present and so narratively applicable that Yena had to kind of sort through all of it and find her own place within those systems. Full spoilers, she's a part of the pantheon and doesn't know it. So the way that she has to negotiate her relationship to these stories, this is the way that things are, and it's not necessarily super questioned. And then to be thrown into it headfirst, and for her the, her day-to-day and life-and-death reality to then help redefine the very fabric of the, of the universe, you know, and these the relationship between these three major gods. So that's like major, like folklore in your face in recent fantasy. And the first story, there's also the really interesting, the official narrative versus she goes home and discovers, oh, by the way, we've got a temple to the supposedly evil Nahadoth. And yeah, starts to see the ways that the orthodoxy was imposed. And yeah, I think I do remember that in the later two, her figuring out how to be a god and what it means that she's a god. Well, yeah, because um, there's such a difference between Itempus as he is regarded as kind of the, the dangerous overlord in book one versus the person finding their own way in book two mm-hmm. is a really great way of reframing a divinity just by changing some POVs in a setting within the same world. Mm-hmm. 
Another tack to look at is that with folklore, we are often telling a familiar story. I feel like increasingly folklore from non-American and non-Western European cultures is coming in and being used, and people who grew up on those stories are incorporating those stories in. And I have mm -hmm. definitely had the experience where I'm reading fairy tale retellings of fairy tales that I don't know. Right. But but let's focus on the American and Western European perspective for a moment and say, for quite a while, there was a genre, and there, there still is a genre, of retelling stories that we already know, either a hero's journey that we're very familiar with, whether we could explicitly state it or not, or a fairy tale. You know, I'm, I'm retelling the story that you already know. And I guess what's interesting to me is there's part of me that says, but I probably already know this story. Like, what's what's the tell in that and and then there's kind of i guess interrogating how the characters react and what the motivations are and sort of humanizing those characters where do you see the the strength and the value in those kinds of stories and are there any that really jump out at you as either falling flat or being particularly good and exciting and, and giving new life to those stories in folkloristics one of the ways that this is expressed is that folklore exists in the tension between continuity and dynamism, where continuity is there's a tradition and it's handed down and you do thing you do it exactly this way. Here's a ritual, this is the coming of age ritual, you do this thing, you take the child out of their village, they take these clothes off, they put those clothes on, you say this song, you lead them in this dance, and then you know you do this ritual piercing, and then you sing a song and they are a grown-up. And that, that tradition in you know types of traditions like that in communities around the world, that may pass down centuries where the amount of dynamism, the amount of drift and change or innovation or recontextualization is almost zero. Okay. So you have their tradition carrying forward mostly in continuity. And then you have other places where dynamism comes in, where an individual will change how things are done. They'll add something, they'll take something away. And sometimes this is entirely functional, like, oh, well, we can't sacrifice a pig because we don't have any pigs. There aren't enough pigs right now. So we don't, we're not going to do the pig thing anymore. And then tradition changes. Looking at retellings nowadays, Disney is doing tons of retellings to the point where their retellings of Grimm's and Hans Christian Andersen tales have become the official one. You know, I say with Cody fingers. Mm -hmm. um, but then also superheroes are constantly having their stories retold and retold and retold. And what happens with those, I think the most powerful are when they recontextualize for the social situation that people's, you know, people are living in. You know, you've got a new, you know, a newer version of Spider-Man where Spider-Man is Miles Morales and he's a black Latino kid in New York because the vast majority of the people who live in Queens are not white. You know, Queens is majority Asian and, you know, used to be more, more black and now Brooklyn. So with superhero characters, you can retell them and recreate them to fit a new status quo. And I think that's something that happens a lot. And then in fairy tales, we're seeing, you know, there's feminist retellings, there's queer reinterpretations. So those within the fantastic, we're seeing a lot of these stories retold or reframed from a minoritarian position. I want to move soon to some of the more modern fan and comic book stuff. But mm -hmm. before we get off of the vein of fantasy that has been interpreting folklore for quite a while, mm -hmm. what is the most interesting thing for you about how folklore and fantasy have interacted and, I don't know, maybe fantasy's kind of overwritten folklore or vice versa? What's the most interesting way you've seen them interacting that I haven't asked about yet? 
I think there's a couple of books that I've read recently that I think both do really cool things with folklore. I just finished reading Robert Jackson Bennett's City of Stairs. I've heard good things. Yeah, it's it took me a while to get around to it, but it is really an impressive work. And the basic premise there is you have a colonial force occupying the nation that used to be the colonial force that occupied it. So the tables have completely turned, Mm -hmm. and now this new colonizing force has rewritten history and forbidden texts and forbidden practice. So all of the folklore of this formerly colonizing nation has been taken away from them and forbidden. So there's these groups that are trying to preserve folklore or recapture it, or they're basically reinventing the wheel, but they don't know the score and they don't know everything. But then this formerly oppressed, now oppressors, have all the extra information and are applying pressure socially and, you know, kind of through military and and other forces to keep their former oppressors as the subaltern. So there's this really interesting kind of reverse and double-blind of keeping information from one another as expressed through folk religious practice. There's an orthodoxy coming from above that says you don't get to do anything with these gods at all. So all the folklore and who gets to do what and believe what is a really core part of that book. There's actual theology and actual religious practice and sort of folk practices within the book. Uh, well, they're the practices of this world rather than uh, Earth practices. Yeah, no, no. But I mean, I mean, the book actually sort of discusses because I feel like something that I so often am missing from fantasy is just that while those practices may be in the background, I feel like they're mm-hmm. they're so rarely kind of centered and made visible. Yeah, there's there is a decent bit of reference of a folk practice, and there are there's one group whose god died a long time ago or left, and they're not really sure, but they maintain the practices that were the edicts of that god, even though they have zero reason to believe that the god is either around to hear them or bothers paying attention. So you have um, sacred practice derived from sacred belief that gets repeated and has a strong enough thread of continuity that it just becomes social practice i am sold on city of stairs it is moving way up on my to be read list cool because i feel like anytime i get actual look here's some real religion and we're taking it seriously and it's it's interesting and you can actually see some of the practice for it that is one of the things that i i particularly love about reading the fantasy genre so yeah. uh yeah i'm i'm in and it's one of those books that has the little little bits of culture in between chapters. Okay. You know, they'll give you a little bit from this text or a prayer or a poem. People need um, to tell me these things more often. I'm so <laughs> excited. Excellent. I have, a, I, have an, I have a great new book to read out of this. Good. The other recent one that does a fair amount of this is Max Gladstone's The Craft Sequence. Also on my to-be-read list, mostly on the strength of Max's blog posts. Max is great, yeah. Yeah. And with and these books, because they are almost modern urban fantasy, but with a huge kind of divine presence that's public in a, in a world that's not our own, Max does this great job of talking about contemporary subjects like credit default swaps and bankruptcy and water rights. <laughs> but it's all through a system where there was this big god war and there are divinities and you can apply the power of divinities and faith. So like folk practice versus official practice and the way that... Kind 
kind of these magically powered lawyers apply argumentation. There's their own practices, and there's the the world of the craft sequence is super lush. And then one more that I think you can look at for folk practice is Catherine Addison's The Goblin Emperor, where there's this day-to-day life, and you have the practices that are required of someone at the very top of the hierarchy, because, you know, it's the new emperor, and the, the way that the world is gestured at toward that. And then, you know, we can get into the tea rituals of the Raj in yes. and Lefty's Ancillary yes. Justice and that well, series. And tea is so important, right? Tea, tea is incredibly important, but also things like there's dice rolling in order to make some decisions, and she has a couple of scenes where she's got to perform the ritual for the entire ship's crew. Yes, I love those elements and the elements that said this is the ratch culture and these are the ways in which the ratch culture has yeah their tea rituals and their their ideas about fate and how kind of the world works in yeah. both ancillary justice and sword those were those were fantastic one of the most important things that I think it's useful to talk about with regards to folkloristics and the genre is the idea of tale types where there are certain types of stories. So the monomyth would be a tale type. The hero's journey, whichever version you want to talk about it. Cinderella is a tale type. And there's a actually a big like official book that's the tale type index, which has been updated a few times. Mm-hmm. You can look up a story by its bones, its narrative bones, and, the, and then there's the little, little bits that get added on. So tale types, I think, are really cool to talk about because it's a great way to just build a story, honestly is Mm -hmm. to take a tail type, throw it into a setting, and then see how it would need to adjust. Because one of the things that I think is most important from a folkloristic standpoint, this is also very much in anthropology, when you're looking at narrative, is that there is a cultural use. We tell certain stories at certain times to certain audiences for a reason. And we may not necessarily always know that reason, but the discipline, folklore in particular, has spent a lot of time analyzing and positing certain reasons for these things. Thinking about why do we tell this story? Why did I just tell my daughter the story of the child who cried wolf? Yeah. You know, I have very specific reasons for that. Yeah, you know, there's there's more, you know, kind of moral or social lessons in a lot of these stories. But then to go back to the example that I gave of the coming of age ritual or the, like the transitional ritual, you tell this story at this time because of this reason. We tell ghost stories at Halloween because it's All Hallows Eve and it's the time when we connect with our dead, when the spirit world is closest. It's a time of transition. We're heading into the place where we need to be inside more, and that the darkness is rising. That there's all all these real life reasons that form thematic inclinations that then create that aesthetic agenda that we tell these stories for this reason at this time. I'm going to buy that folklorists have lots of really good reasons for (laughs) looking for that kind of agenda. And I'm going to buy that you can always construct that kind of agenda. Sure. I'm skeptical but I would hate to get into an argument with anyone who knew actually about folklore and, and had researched those sorts of reasons. And I certainly buy that a good reason to have an All Hallows Eve late fall and start chasing people inside is that it's going to get cold and wintry in, in Europe and America. So maybe I don't have as much basis for being skeptical as, as I would think. It's really easy to come up with some reasons that are pretty good. It's best for me and I think for people who are in in the field of folkloristics, to not necessarily say this is the one and only reason for X, because Mm -hmm. everybody, you know, everybody recreates a a practice when they engage with it, you know, so you have your own relationship to any folk practice, whether that's a dance or a song or, um, you know, making a recipe, like a traditional recipe is, is folklore, so that there's always personal 
agendas and agency built into individual enactments or repetitions of those things. So saying that there's only ever one reason is more like a top-down thing, whereas folklore is so very frequently emergent from the bottom up that you're making it as you go. And I think it's a really underutilized form of indicating world-building and characterization. Talk about the day-to-day -day practices of a culture or of this person, and then you can use that character or those characters to contrast. Do they not do the things that other people do? Do they notice foreigners doing things differently? Or when they are the foreigner, do they observe how people do it? Because people code switch, you try to fit in, and all of that, like, or not all, sorry, not all of it is folklore, but a lot of it is folk practice. Mm -hmm. you know, the way that you talk, different folk speech, sayings, all of that kind of stuff, that can be the texture of especially fantasy or anything that's not our world. But also, in our world, talking about an individual culture. Uh, Daniel Jose Older has a version yeah. of New York in his Bone Street Rumba series that mm -hmm. anyone who lives in New York can recognize because he lives there. And he's putting it very presently and intentionally, and especially the New York of people of color, um, and not just kind of white midtown New York. Like, it's really in there. So it's this world's folklore, folklore and then sacred practices or sacred beliefs from within a non-Western or a non-kind of Euro-derived Western practice. So you get really rich folklore in urban fantasy. Yeah, I definitely agree. I have not yet read Shadow Shaper, but... Half Resurrection Blues. If yeah. you ever get the chance to hear Daniel uh, give a reading, mm -hmm. it is amazing. He has such musicality in his writing and the way that then he performs it. And oftentimes he'll get people to play music as he's as he's performing. Uh -huh. It's really, really cool. Um, okay. Coming from a performance background, I pay really close attention to who the great performers and readers of their own work are. And um, Daniel has definitely launched himself very quickly into into those ranks. I saw him perform some material from Salsa Nocturna, his collection at ReaderCon a couple years ago, and it was great. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book, the right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. One book that's really fun for me to, to think back to is The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. came out when I was just maybe a year or two into getting serious as a writer and paying really close attention to craft, and but also early in inclinations or, or thinking about what kind of writer I wanted to be. And I read Lies of Locke Lamora, and it's got heistiness, and it's got incredible prose, and this cool ensemble, and banter, and just all of these craft elements at a really high level that I was incredibly impressed by and, you know, very struck by by that book. And it's one of the books kind of in that two or three year span around 2006 or mm -hmm. so. Definitely one of the books that made a big impression on me. And then kind of coming into the world of SF&F prose publishing as a professional, I've gotten to meet and hang out with Scott. And like that work and that writer are a special combination of a work that hit me in a really interesting way and remains very much on my mind at times and thinking about how novels work and kind of what one can do with fantasy that then I've also been able to enrich through a personal relationship with the author um, mm -hmm. in being in being colleagues in the genre and, you know, hanging out at conventions. It's one that I think back to as this is a weird and awesome life that I live where I love this book, and now I know that author well enough that 
if we pass at Worldcon, we'd be like, hey, and then, you know, stop and get coffee or something. And that there are these other authors where I've got that strong relationship now, but the timing of engaging with their work, having it have an influence on me, and then getting to, to really, uh, to know that, the, know the author and moving into being an author and having all of those relationships and the positionalities of the work interconnect is a, is a very singular thing for me. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.